Hey, everybody. I'm Jesse Hutch. I uh, hope you tune in, listen to Craig on Neil Before You Pod. Currently, I am on DC's Batwoman playing Agent Tavaroff, and I'm going to go way back. See if you can find me in Freddy vs. Jason. Good luck. <laughs> Have a great day. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that is kept alive by a magical flower. We'll explain later. I'm your host Craig, and we're here to discuss season two of Batwoman. Big change for Batwoman. So, coming back from a very long hiatus, possibly with a different face and maybe a different personality. I don't know. We'll find out. It's Andrew. Hello, or is that your real name? Well, it is for the moment, and if nothing else, I still have exactly the same incredibly nerdy voice. So I imagine for most listeners, it will be entirely unchanged. That's what we hope. That's the whole personality transplant thing. But maybe that's a spoiler. I don't know. Let's assume it's not. Out of context spoiler, I suppose. No one will know what we're talking about. But yeah, Batwoman Season 2 was a thing that was on, and... It's now finished, so naturally we're here to talk about it. Why don't we just get started on your spoiler-free take on this second season, this weird landmark second season where a lot changed for the production team. They were blindsided by an unexpected departure that they had to compensate for. So I don't think it's a spoiler to say there's a new lead character because there is and you can't get away from that. So what did you think of season two? Well, I thought it was okay overall. The first season of Batwoman didn't really grip me as much as many of the other Arrowverse shows. So I wasn't overly invested in its continuation. But I think that overall it was okay. And I certainly think that they made the best of a very undesirable situation and managed to work their way around the accompanying issues to deal with them in a more or less organic way or at least one that felt like it. I'd agree I liked it a lot more than I liked season one and I think a large part of that was due to the lead character being more engaging. I don't want to be all look I never liked Kate Kane because that's not the case I, I did like the character but I found Ryan to be more engaging and I'll definitely get into why I believe that and why I think she's a much better fit for this particular show and the direction they chose to take it in. And as you say, they're a really crappy situation that they made the best of. Again, we'll get into that. But yeah, I thought it was a good effort. And considering everything that was stacked against them in terms of making this happen, well done to the writers and producers and directors and everybody that was involved in making this what it was. Because I don't envy them having to start from scratch after one season of something and then not even being able to build up to it in your first season. It just happens to you. And also happens to you before your first season is technically even finished because the season's final episodes or the story for them, I presume just had to be completely scrapped after everything went on hiatus because of you know why. Uh, so they had to quickly design an entire new setup, deal with the lingering plot threads from how they left things with the not unreasonable assumption that Kate would still be there to address them, and then to launch off somewhere new without it feeling too jarring. And I actually think they did quite a good job in that regard. Same. So to get more into it, should we just activate the spoiler signal and go into the spoiler cave and talk about it? Let's do the thing. Let's do it. 
Okay, let's start with the biggest change we have. We have a new lead character, Ryan Wilder. She is from the other side of the tracks that Kate Kane was from. Kate Kane was rich. She was connected. She was well-trained, etc. Ryan is the opposite. She's not rich. She doesn't even have a house. She's not connected in any way. She is just someone that's trying to get by in Gotham. And to me, I found that more interesting. And they used it very well throughout the season where it's, no, this is where homeless people hide. We can't leave these plague spreading bats in here or we can't go here. Or she knows people to talk to or she knows what circles to roll in. Whereas Kate wouldn't know that and Bruce Wayne wouldn't know that. So she has a connected perspective to the people of Gotham that they never could have. And that's interesting to me. I thought they played with that background very well. I thought she was an engaging character. I think Javicia Leslie excellent in that role. They really pivoted to a new Batwoman almost seamlessly, I think. And I think she led the show brilliantly. I totally agree. It was a really interesting character. And I also thought that it was an interesting choice for for them to create an entirely brand new character for the show and not just import someone from the comics to replace Kate. And with what you're saying about their vastly differing economic conditions. One of the underlying issues that I've generally found with rich superheroes, like with someone like Bruce Wayne or Tony Stark or whoever, is it's easy to get the impression that for them being a superhero crime fighter is kind of a hobby because they could literally never do anything productive at all for the rest of their entire lives and they would still be absolutely fine. Whereas with someone like Ryan, because she has had to fight for everything that she has in her life to simply stay alive, then for her being Batwoman is something that she would do because she feels it necessary, not just because she feels like doing it for the hell of it and not doing it for some arbitrary nebulous reason like bettering society or making the city more appealing to live in for other rich people or anything like that. For her, because she has seen the suffering and inequality that exists right at the bottom of society, and she has lived it her entire life. And because she has that personal experience, and for her it's something that she is directly fighting against for herself and for people like her. Whereas for someone like Kate, she's really doing it because it's something she feels she should, not for any specific reason. And I think that's one of the things that makes Ryan a far more compelling character and someone you can more closely identify with. It's that age-old argument with Bruce Wayne, isn't it? That if he just spent his money in Gotham, he would make things way better than if he was just beating up criminals. In fact, arguably, he makes things a lot worse because he encourages massive retaliation from the Joker and from Bane and all this stuff just to tear apart the city just to get to him. So... There is that argument with Bruce Wayne that spend your money, man. That's all you need to do. That's how you make things better. And they kind of did that a bit with Kate Kane, where she did her real estate thing, but that was introduced and kind of dropped. She did her gay bar, which is still a function in the show, which is fine. But she wasn't fighting the social justice side of things, where Ryan made that a part of her character, actually. It was about in the middle of the season where she was talking about it's not enough for us to just take down criminals. We have to actually make things better from the ground up. So you had the youth centres and all that stuff because she understands what it's like for young, particularly people of colour in the system. And she wanted to make that better. And she was trying to actively make that better, which was a really interesting fixture for her. She suddenly found herself with a bit of power, financial power, influence, connections. And she wanted to use that to make the city a better place, like a tangibly better place. 
anything about it being more important to change society because if you're only putting criminals away then that is literally all you're doing just put criminals away but by addressing the underlying societal issues that for the most part ends up creating these criminals then you can actually deal with the problem of the criminals anyway before they even emerge by trying to fix the circumstances that cause them to turn to crime in the first place do you think this show is making a comment on Batman specifically has left Gotham in a very diseased state because there are so many things that reference his past exploits. There's villains that come back. Dr. Rhyme is the Riddler's daughter, maybe. They never actually say either way, although it's heavily implied. And there's other things. Thomas Elliot is behaving the way he is because he hates Bruce Wayne, or he loves Bruce Wayne. There's a really thin yes. line there. And other things that come up. I mean, you've got that whole shrine that he has to his old villains that he's defeated, which is a stone's throw away from his evil older self mm. that we saw in Crisis, isn't it? That's the trophies, isn't it? You're not keeping them there because you want them to be kept safe from the public. Though that's part of it. But you're keeping them because it's a scorecard, isn't it? It's a tally mark. It's you've defeated these people, but the stuff is still there. You should have it destroyed, if anything. But... You don't keep it. There's something a bit sociopath about that, in a way. It isn't directly saying it, but there is a suggestion that Bruce Wayne has left Gotham in a very diseased state, which keeps it running the way it is. That's why the crows are so corrupt. Everything is happening because of what Bruce started. And I guess Ryan is recognising that and looking to it. No, we can let's do something to fix it. And it's about small steps. We can't fix this overnight. It's about, let's take a step. Let's fix something. Let's change something that we can change in a very small way. And... That impact is almost the Superman thing. Inspire one person, they'll inspire another person. They'll inspire another person and so on. And it spreads in that way. So I think the Batwoman mantle is a much more positive one than the Batman mantle, at least with Ryan in it, because Kate never really had the time to define it. Even though the show tried to do this, I'm trying to live up to Kate's legacy. So she was Batwoman for, what, eight months or something? It wasn't very long at all. It's almost like in The Dark Knight where they talk about, yeah, Batman's been out there and he's been helping and he's really inspired the city. And it's, it's been a year. You know, how much can he really have done? I'm not sure if there is an intention to directly criticise how Batman was doing things. It certainly isn't shying away from the fact that Gotham is basically a diseased urban hellhole that few people would live in if they actually had the choice. But I think they're using the different perspective that inherently comes with the characters to simply observe that there is a different way of doing things. And this other way of doing things might be less flashy or impressive or bombastic or headline stealing. But in the long run, it will probably end up being more effective and better for the city as a whole. In the long run. And that's the key part, isn't it? It's that we can't do this overnight because it's so broken but if we try and do something and it's that apathy that other connected and rich people have it's that well i can't do anything or maybe they don't even want to do anything but it's the attitude of i can't do anything that keeps people from doing anything and that's the way it is i mean that's topical it's the way it is because gotham is a two-tier society at least as it's portrayed in the show you have people like ryan living on the streets or living in vans or sleeping under parking garages or whatever people sleeping rough people at the bottom end of stuff or people that are living in like squalid conditions squatting in empty apartments and so on and then you've got the rich people that rise so far above it that never experience any of that hardship because they're so far above it so gotham's okay if you're in that rich bracket if you're on the street if you're in low income even you're screwed you're completely 
stuck. So there's the two types of people. There's the people that can't go anywhere else. As you said, there's people that are stuck there in that situation. And then you've got people like Mary, for example, who will never experience that level of hardship in that way. Mary's a slightly different example because she does that clinic side of things. But at the same time, she is from that privileged background where she doesn't have to do that. She's taken it upon herself because I guess she's come to some realisation. But if she wanted to, she would never have to experience the real Gotham in a way because she can be so far above it. She literally lived in a penthouse in the first season. So you've got all that. There's no other real rich character in the show. I guess that's Sophie's a different story again. But you get what I mean. That level of society don't have to really experience what the criminal element is like because they're protected from it. Exactly, and all the things that these criminals do doesn't actually affect them. Apart from all the attacks on swanky parties. Yes, but even so, people like that would generally assume that it would be for a specific reason, that that particular party was targeted, and if they were to ever have a similar function, then of course they would be safe, because they could ever have done anything that the the people hate them for, because they're so utterly blameless. Yeah, Ryan's introduction, I think that's important to talk about. The way she was introduced was really interesting. I remember reading an interview with, I believe it was Greg Berlanti, when it was first breaking the whole, what do we do here? How do we (laughs) fix this? We have this situation. And he actually responded quite positively. He talked about how you should treat these things as opportunities rather than setbacks. So it's an opportunity to do something, to write yourself around it. I mean, the capabilities of the writers is up in the air in some cases. And I think it's easy to say that and then not come up with it. But how many times have you seen massive shifts in a casting thing for a show or plot direction? And then you find that the showrunner or whoever apologises for it afterwards. That happened in the final season of The 100, where they had to downplay one of the characters because of personal reasons from the actor. And they told you that in interviews as if that would be enough as if people watching the show would know this or reading the cliff notes that are in this interview. But they're not. It's on the screen or it isn't. So you've got to come up with a reason within the confines of your show. I mean, to be fair, it can be impossible to do that when you're not able to film things or it happens in the middle of something and whatever. That is a problem. That's an insurmountable issue. But at the same time, if you're rewatching Batwoman in five years, you're not going to realise that, or hopefully you're not going to realise that, there was a global pandemic at the time and that really upset filming. Also, the lead actress left with known warning. That's why the beginning of the season is crap. And it's not crap, but it's an example of the excuses they might make. So I think Berlanti, if that was him that said it, was dead on in that whole, no, it's your job as a writer to come up with a way around this, especially when you have the time. And they had the time. It's a bit clunky in the sense that, oh, Kate Kane's believed dead because they don't show her die or anything like that. Okay, you don't have the actor. Fine, you don't have that. But I think starting the season from Ryan's perspective with a plane crash where Kate is in that plane and she witnesses it and she finds the bat suit and we go from there was a great way to introduce her. It gave you that perspective of this is who this is about now. This is her story. This is her journey. This is how she gets into this world. It gives you that immediately. And I thought that was... So economic, so succinct, and a great way to give you an insight into this new character very, very quickly. Yeah, it was a really efficient way of doing things. Because when you introduce new characters, and also in this case, when this new character is going to be your new lead, then there's always the risk of doing everything far too slowly because you want them to be properly developed. But but then again, you don't want to end up doing, doing it too quickly. But in this case, just in those few minutes, it told us everything that we needed to know to get us to do where this new season was starting off from. And then 
after quickly establishing that, I was like, okay, we've done that. Now we can go from here and figure out how we're going to develop things. Because the starting point of having to establish why such a massive shift in a status quo is being brought about is already done. And it's something that you can come back to later to then build on and to establish how it affects the story. But just for an initial introduction, it was just like, boom, done. Let's go. And yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, let's ignore for a minute the fact that the suit fits Ryan perfectly off the rack, so to speak. I just chose to quietly ignore that. It's like when Diggle was wearing Oliver's costume in Arrow. Yeah. (laughs) Can't share the costume. Diggle will be stretching that out. Have you seen any of the multiple dozens of times these two men have stood beside each other? Quite a size difference. Yeah. (laughs) It's the same with Ryan and Kate. They have different, shall we say, body types. Yeah. Well, I don't know. The costume can do everything else. Maybe it does mould itself to the user. Somehow it has this space-age fabric that just expands or contracts depending on who's wearing it. I don't know. Yeah, that works. It wouldn't be the craziest thing they got the suit doing. Exactly. (laughs) But yeah, great introduction. And it tells you, okay, here's what we think has happened to Kate. So we've established the mystery of where's Kate Kane, what's happened to her. Is she dead? Is she not? Why is the plane crashing? All those questions. But also you have this new inheritor to the mantle in the background well not in the background in the foreground and then through there she gets introduced to Luke and Mary who team up with her effectively you get an interesting setup towards the beginning where Luke and Mary are in charge of team Batwoman with Ryan being essentially their interim superhero or interim vigilante that they can tell what to do and then I think they transition a bit too quickly to okay the identity is yours now and Mary's like right you're in charge you have no experience with anything like this, but you're in charge now. All the decisions are yours. You've followed your lead. That isn't necessarily earned as such, but I think the dynamic that they build up early on, especially when you have Mary on one side of it, where she's like, mm, you're just filling in till Kate gets back because she's definitely coming back, where it looks like, nah, she's dead. Hmm. We have to face up to the fact that she's dead. I think we've praised on previous podcasts how out of our shows handle grief and how they all have a different approach through different characters and they always do it pretty well. Because it's always, everybody's different. It's not everyone reacts in the same way. And here you have that contrast. You have Mary being hopeful, but not willing to admit to what she thinks is actually true until much later on. And Luke being very fatalist about it, trying to move on with his life because he believes, yeah, she ain't coming back. There was a plane crash. And people don't generally walk away from plane crashes. So that's a problem. And then you had Mary encouraging him to be a bit more hopeful, and then Luke encouraging her to be a bit more realistic. So it was great the way they complemented each other in that respect. And then Ryan was just desperately trying to live up to this example that Kate set, that she didn't really set because she wasn't Batwoman for that long. Mary has always been one of my favourite characters in the show, possibly my most favourite. And it's precisely that kind of optimism that I really thought was a genuine reaction to how she would have handled the situation and not just being put in to be one of two diametrically opposed viewpoints on the situation. And I also really liked how, even though it seemed like Kate was gone, it wasn't something that was immediately dealt with and forgotten about. It was a recurring issue over a number of episodes where everyone was simply searching to find the truth of what actually happened so they can then figure out what actually did happen to Kate and from there establish whether or not she's actually still alive. I think the willingness to be patient with that plotline and not just immediately rush out and get it wrapped up so they can just forget about Kate and move on with new stories. I thought was a really compelling way of doing things and it kept reminding you that there is a hole in these people's lives that isn't even close to being filled yet and it's only with 
answers that they can have any kind of closure. Although one thing I did find a little bit limiting, especially where Mary's concerned, Luke had an arc, but I feel like Mary's arc was more connected to other people. So it's about being Ryan's friend and supporter, trying to help Jacob through his addiction slash get his approval on her clinic situation and be a friend to Luke and setting up the whole you're Alice's only family now that no one else is around. So I don't feel like she really had anything that was all her own. It was all propping up other people, which is a bit of a shame. I think the same was true last season, though. She didn't seem to have a lot of her own, not agency, she had plenty of that, but everything she did or everything she was involved in was connected to other people. Other than her clinic situation that she's dealing with, everything that she does is in aid of someone else's story, which is a bit limiting for her, I think. Yeah, because there is a great deal of potential for her because as has been established she is a highly intelligent adaptable and capable woman so to have her presence in the show in a narrative sense to simply be in service of her connections to other people and her interactions with them to merely serve their development rather than her own it's very very limiting and i think that it possibly indicates a lack of understanding of the character's true potential so i can only hope that that's something that will be addressed going forwards and she can actually have development that is purely her own and will hopefully lead to her actually being able to do more interesting things. Yeah, though I loved her dynamic with Ryan. I thought their friendship that cropped up very quickly was brilliant. She was always the most fervent supporter of her. And everything that she needed, she kept giving to her. It was, I need a place to live. No problem. Mm-hmm. This place is paid for. I live here. You can live here too. We'll be roomies. It's going to be great. And then you need a job? No bother. I've got this bar that I own. You can have that. And it's just mm-hmm. all this stuff. She becomes a bar manager like overnight and her parole officer doesn't raise any red flags there. It's like, you're not qualified for this position. How have you been put in it? That kind of stuff. So lots of conveniences that Mary is able to provide just by her position. And I like how they get around the whole, but aren't you affiliated with your mother's company? And she's like, nah, I sold all my shares, so it's all cool. I don't have to do anything. (laughs) (laughs) And she's not an influencer anymore. She doesn't do that either. I think the reason for having that in first season, certainly, was a quick way of establishing that Mary is this multifaceted woman that people might write off very quickly one way or the other. Because it's possible for some people to just dismiss her as this vacuous party girl who doesn't do anything other than post cute selfies and nonsense online. But as well as that, also establishing that she is a talented doctor. It shows the kind of contrast that can exist with a single person. But I think now they've decided that the whole influencer angle really didn't have much potential to go anywhere or be of any kind of narrative use so it's something that they just dropped because otherwise it would probably end up getting in the way if if they felt compelled to keep referencing it. The only value it had in season one was that plot where people that had plastic surgery were being targeted or whatever it was and she was the one that knew everything. Exactly, yes because she knew all the gossip. Yeah, which was a bit like that time that married couples or celebrity couples were being targeted in Arrow, and Thea was the one that knew mm-hmm. because she followed their careers, careers in a very common, she followed their <laughs> exploits in the media, and she was like, oh my God, these people are being targeted. That's, that's annoying. I like them for some reason. I don't know what they do. but So that was the only real thing that Mary's influencer role brought in in season one, and then it had that whole knowing the right party to go to and who might be at it and things like that, which they did a bit of in this season as well. They had that whole dressing Ryan up so she can go and attend that art thing to get the Joker's weird painting that wasn't the Joker's weird painting that was 
strange plot. <laughs> it was very odd. So the Brazat, they ditched that, which means what have you got instead? You've got the doctor thing, and what is that? Well, Jacob wants to shut down the clinic because it's illegal, and that's it. That's all that really did. And then by the end, it's let's put one of our youth centres on top of your clinic and let's run it legitimately or whatever else. But her friendship with Ryan was great. Her friendship with Luke was great. Her emotional connection to Kate was used well. The setting up the sister angle with Alice, I'm not sure how that's going to go. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'll wait till we're at that point. Let's just go there now. Why not? It's a natural point. Okay, I personally, I wasn't buying it at all, the whole thing with Alice. It's partly because... I absolutely despise Alice. Not just in terms of her being a villain, I just hate everything about her character. And so, for me, just trying to set up that connection, for me, it just completely rang hollow. Especially when you remember the fact that Alice was the one who murdered Mary's mother. And Ryan's. <laughs> that too, yes. <laughs> Although she didn't do it, it was one of her goons, wasn't it? I don't think it was actually her, but she was there. So when they were trying to make that connection, it just seemed completely forced and utterly rang hollow. Yeah, and it depends what they do with it from here, but it seems weird to, oh yeah, you have to look out for your only sister that you've got left, says Jacob Kane. Let's never mind the fact that she killed your mother and showed no remorse for it. And I can understand why you would dislike Alice, and they're very clearly heading down the redemption road, or trying to. Some of the time. Some of the time, yeah. And as I was reviewing it over the course of the season, I kept wondering, is it possible to redeem her? And then if you look at other shows where they've managed to sort of redeem evil characters, Spike, for example, in Buffy, how can you redeem Spike? Well, you kind of get him to the point where people don't care what he did before or have almost forgotten what he did before. So Alice, it's arguable that what she's done is unforgivable, but they tried to do the taking her down a road where she is a victim. So she had that whole chunk of her life taken from her that she'd forgotten about, associated with Sophia and Ocean and her time on Coriana, the island. And I found that interesting because it's robbing a piece of herself and it gives you that almost the excuse for her to be the way she is just now. However, it also robs her of agency because she wasn't making these decisions. She was poisoned by this chunk of her life that got removed from her. Which means, is she responsible for her own actions? Is she not responsible for her own actions? Is she better adjusted if she gets those memories back? Is she not? What's the actual angle here? So what are you telling us? Are you telling us that she was essentially brainwashed? Or are you telling us that she's a bad person? You know, either way, she's kind of a bad person because she still does those things. But I guess it's down to the other characters to take it into account and whether they can forgive her based on those factors. They didn't develop it strongly, but I think they were onto something with that. And I do think Rachel Scarston's very, very good at playing that, and it, it, she's very good at making the character a little bit sympathetic. But it was getting a bit ridiculous how every time Team Batwoman needed something, Alice would just slink in from nowhere and be like, I'll help, and then I'll betray you and leave, and then I'll help next week, and then I'll betray you and leave, and then repeat. I could have possibly bought the whole redemption angle if there was any kind of consistency into how it was being portrayed. But in one episode, I was like, oh, my life has been destroyed. I am unworthy of love. I must continue to do these evil things because I literally can't do anything else. And then the next episode is like, I'm just going to randomly murder people because it's fun and because I want to. I'm just not going to give these people a second thought because they aren't integral to the plot. Just that inconsistency I found really frustrating because the moment that she again starts relishing in her sadism, that completely obliterates any kind of sympathy that I would have been previously able to muster up for her. And it got to the point where 
I just genuinely stopped caring. And the fact that her very presence just became an irritant. And any scene where she was there and quipping these snide witticisms that really weren't that funny or insightful just sounded obnoxious. I did find it interesting the way that she coped with the loss of Kate, though, because everyone else had a support structure and she doesn't, which she brings on herself, of course. That's the way she is. She's gone a bit off the reservation sanity-wise, so fine. She doesn't have that support structure. She doesn't have anybody helping her, although she has people she could reach out to if she wanted to, but she doesn't. And there's that scenario where she wants rid of her memories of Kate entirely. She wants to get rid of them. She wants to forget that Kate ever existed. And it's that, what does she become with that? Because we see kind of what she becomes when she loses her memory of Ocean and how much he helped her contextualise the fact that her family moved on from her loss before. So she had that taken away from her. So she went right back to blaming them for forgetting about her rather than realising it's been years. You need to understand that people need to move on with their lives. She doesn't have the emotional maturity to realise that without that lesson being learned because she's been brought up inside a cupboard, essentially, a basement cupboard. So that's going to throw anybody through a ringer, isn't it? But I think more work needed to be done there to make it all hang together. I don't think it does as well as it needs to, but I did find aspects of it interesting. And I found the way the show played with her in some ways to be interesting as well. And contextualising her as a villain for Ryan through the fact that Alice killed or was there when Ryan's mother, adopted mother, was killed is kind of clumsy. It's a clumsy way of, this is how you make Alice relevant to the new protagonist by having that tangible connection rather than Alice is just a villain that she needs to bring down for whatever reason. So I think the way it fueled Ryan's desire to get revenge, how she had murderous intent and then she got over it and she wanted justice. I think that was a good arc for Ryan, but I do think it's kind of forced to, let's manufacture a personal connection between Alice and Ryan through this way. And that was one of the primary issues with having a new lead on the show. Every single featured character in the show is there because of their connection to Kate. And so without that, their relevance dwindles and their continued presence just seems like more of a laboured point. And as you say, I get that it was necessary to manufacture that connection between Ryan and Alice just so there would be some kind of emotional intensity to their interactions, but I also think there would have been far less forced ways of doing it that didn't rely on such an unlikely enormous coincidence. Yeah, and another unlikely enormous coincidence is that Sophie and Ryan know each other because Sophie's arrested her a few times. (laughs) Oh, Ryan Wilder, you're in here again, talking to me again. And it seemed like for a while they were trying to set up a bit of a romantic connection between them that wasn't working. What is it with Sophie in this show being incompatible with any love interest they try and give her? Except Julia, I think that worked fairly well. Yeah, I did like that. And I actually kind of wish there'd be more of it. Rather than her just disappearing for essentially no reason. Exactly. I've been brainwashed to go and accept her job over here now. And then she's just gone after that. No one looks her up and be like, by the way, you've been brainwashed. We should bring you back. I think it was just because she just ended up being one of the unfortunate casualties of the plot being completely retooled and once they figured out what they're doing where they're going they realized there really wasn't any kind of place for her yeah and early on i thought that about sophie as well like why is she here but then they came up with the crow's angle of her realizing the corruption that existed within the crows and then wanting to bring it down from the inside wanting to change things from the inside which again aligns with ryan's mission in a lot of ways but then she quit the crows after realizing how corrupt they were which 
seemed a bit weird as a decision because, well, you can't fix it now. You're not there. I think it was possibly suggesting that her intentions might have been quite noble to begin with, to be able to change the system from the inside. But it was possibly only after she realised just how hopelessly corrupt the entire organisation was that, that she realised that there really wasn't any hope of her actually being able to do so. And that to continue to be associated with such an organisation might irrevocably taint how she perceives herself purely by dint of seeing a part of it when she knows exactly the extent of how how rotten it is. I think that worked well enough. They understood her moral reasons for doing it, but they didn't really address the whole side of it of, well, if you're not in there, you can't fix it. There's nothing you can do now. They're just left to run rampant as they are. But it became a non-issue because... Jacob disbanded them pretty soon after anyway. And then you had these arguments between Ryan and Sophie that were a bit repetitive in a lot of ways because Ryan would say, no, your association with them is unacceptable to me. And Sophie would be like, yeah, but I want to fix it. And they would just keep having that same argument. Even after Sophie left, they still had the same argument. And it was very strange in that respect. I think that was the only conflict they could manufacture between them. And they just kind of hammered it in as much as possible, which... Didn't necessarily work. It's like, can they talk about something else? Did they have to berate each other about this one issue? Yeah, I mean, could they, I don't know, maybe have like a drunken one-night stand that really didn't work out? Exactly. Or, I don't know, Ryan keeps getting arrested and Sophie keeps wondering why or anything like that. But they kept just muddying those connections anyway because pretty early on in the season, Sophie finds out that Kate was Batwoman. She finds out about Mary and Luke's association with Kate in that role. So... She ends up getting brought in to the inner circle very quickly and then she finds out about Ryan pretty soon after that. So I think they were trying to force her into that she's going to be a part of Team Batwoman side of things because that's the only direction they could put her in that means that she gets to stay on the show because she's not like Dougray Scott where he's like, yeah, I'll get another job, I can leave, it's no problem. Exactly, yeah. I do like Sophie as a character and I'm glad that they found a position in which she can stay around. But it just seems like, like everything was just shunted into place a little bit too neatly to allow her to take it up. In some ways it feels like it's a transition season in that way, as in we have to expel all this stuff from the old status quo that we can't use anymore and we have to find this new status quo so everything's in place for season three we have the sisterly bond sort of between alice and mary we've got sophie on team batwoman we've got jacob kane gone because he has no place in the show anymore we've got ryan fully committed to the batwoman mantle we have kate off somewhere alive and well but she's off somewhere she'll be back maybe but now they've got here's ryan's status quo now, because we've expelled everything that was connected to the old stuff that doesn't work with her specifically. And I think, yeah, it's a necessary thing, but they got there a little bit too quickly, especially since it was only, what, 18 episodes? Only 18 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's look at what Marvel are doing. Six episodes. <laughs> it's so funny, the Arrowverse shows, where we've been begging for the seasons to be shorter. And now that they are, it's a bit... Things are a bit quick. I don't know, it was, it was all a bit rushed. They all kind of blasted through it a bit quickly. Maybe a few more episodes to do a bit more gently. Yeah, that would have been better. It's more about effective use of time rather than needing more time, though. I think they could have used the time better. Oh, absolutely. There was quite a bit of filler material, and as you mentioned, repetition, that could have quite easily been excised and made the whole story far more efficient and streamlined. Yeah. Well, I did find the Crow stuff really interesting. So what you have is this diseased organisation that exists and has existed and it's been allowed to go on for so long and Jacob's been turning a blind eye to stuff because he's been bending the rules himself in ways that benefit him or ways that benefit 
just getting around certain legal problems when it comes to bringing criminals in. You have, for example, the two crows that murder someone and they get their badges taken from them, fine, but they still did it. Jacob was about to look the other way and there's a history of this. Ryan understands as she's seen so many people that she knows shot and killed by the crows for that reason. And you get Tavaroff who shoots Luke in the street and he ends up coming out looking like the hero. You get that particular hearing that he sits through afterwards where the white people sitting opposite him are saying, no, you're a hero for what you did. You were well within your rights to do this and it's completely valid the way that you did that. And Tavaroff is that sort of person that is very much an opportunist. He has a plan for where he wants to be and he doesn't care who he steps over to get there. So when he's belittling Sophie in front of Jacob to make her seem less competent and make him seem more competent, the way he behaves... The fact that he has his gang of thugs, essentially, that get to do whatever they want as members of the Crows. And then as soon as the Crows are disbanded, he finds himself affiliated with Sionis because that could get him to where he wants to be. So I find that really interesting. And self-plug, listen to my interview with Jesse Hutch where we talk a bit about that. He thinks that I nailed it in terms of his interpretation of the character, so I'm right. At least according to the actor playing him. But I found Tavaroff interesting in that respect because he embodies what's wrong with the Crows in one man. At least in the point of the series where he's in the crows yeah absolutely and that was definitely the entire point of having him there as a character because it's one thing to have characters observe uh, an organization is hopelessly and irrevocably corrupt but having that embodied in the actions of someone it makes it more tangible and something that you can better latch on to to focus your contempt hopefully instead of it being this vague concept that is going to be dealt with in some way by attaching these problems to actual people then they can be confronted more directly but you almost had this obvious conflict that they didn't ever really play out you've got sophie as everything the crows should be in theory and tavaroff as everything they shouldn't be who wins and what are the drawbacks maybe of sophie's way of doing things her more morally upright way of doing things in theory. And something they didn't do when the crows were disbanded, they suggested that the crime rate went up because they weren't around anymore, but they didn't really do much with it. Again, it was so late in the season, it was difficult to really do anything with it. But that's a really interesting issue. As corrupt as they were, things were better when they were around is a thing you can play with. And maybe it's something they could do next season. It would probably just be for one episode, Ryan will walk into the Batcave and be like, oof. Been out every night this week without the crows. It's bedlam out there. Everyone's out trying to be a criminal. The GCPD are overrun. What do we do about this? Quick, build another youth centre. Because that's the way the CW do things in these shows. It really is. The whole thing about the crime rate spiking is part of a much larger conversation about the effectiveness of law enforcement that this kind of podcast isn't exactly the place for. (laughs) And with the idea that despite how bad the crows were, things were better, the question remains of better for who? Yeah. Because there are certainly many people whose lives were made immeasurably worse by the crows being allowed to run rampant, unchecked, and unregulated. And just a simple statement correlating an increased crime rate with the crows being disbanded is really gross oversimplification of a much larger and much more complex issue, and probably is the kind of thing that takes some time to properly discuss, and probably people smarter than me and more versed in the logistics of it to actually properly explain. But as you said, I don't think it's something that's going to have a great deal of importance and will just end up being hand-waved as something that's there, but we're not really going to deal with it. Yeah, what I think will happen is the crows will be gone and it'll be as if they never existed. They'll barely ever be mentioned. 
other than in passing here and there. And I think they're going to beef up the GCPD as a presence and possibly they might have a commissioner or captain or whoever that Ryan can interact with as Batwoman. Possibly someone by the name of Gordon if they're feeling adventurous. Possibly. I think they'll go with a female commissioner. Yeah, absolutely. And they'll establish that relationship. It probably won't be Barbara Gordon, but it could be anybody. It doesn't have to be affiliated with Gordon in any way. It can just be, this is Commissioner Whoever that Ryan interacts with. Yeah, no, I was just being cynical. <laughs> and you'd be forgiven for being so, because there is so many like second, third generation characters. And we'll talk about one in a bit as well. We've got the Riddler's daughter, and we've got whoever else. There's... So many people with different connections to established Batman villains. And also have a rather prominent character who's the son of a Batman ally. Yes. So let's get on to him while we're at it. Look, actually, had some really interesting stuff this season with the race issues. I think it started specifically when the GCPD came in to the... Is it the hold-up it's called? The gay bar that kicks it up? I think so. I think it's the hold-up. I think that's what it's called. doesn't matter. But the issue comes into play when Ryan's getting quite animated about it and answering back and Luke is trying to be the more diplomatic. And they have this discussion about, I've learned how to pick my battles. And it's suggested that Luke has come from a position of relative privilege, which he kind of has because his dad wasn't poor, but he still understands what being black is like in Gotham City to an extent. Not to the same extent Ryan does and not in the same way. But he does understand it. Yeah, because there are different forms of privilege. And just because you don't happen to be affected by one of them doesn't mean you're automatically immune to the other. Yeah. And it was funny when he got arrested as well, the way it was used. And then they brought in that car thief. And it was quite pointed in the way it was just, why are you in? It was it Ryan that says literally nothing. There's a reason why people can refer to being arrested for walking while black is a whole thing. Yeah. And it's quite relevant here. It works very well in the way that they portray it. However, one thing that didn't really work for me is when he tries to stop that guy stealing that car, I didn't buy that he would step in to try and deal with that. Yeah, it was possibly there's a tacit implication that that was his privilege coming out. And because the situation as it stands was very clear cut, then it would be unreasonable for it to be perceived in any other way. And again, ultimately, that was precisely the point. But yeah, it doesn't really ring true that it was something that would not only feel necessary to even do, but even consider to, to be a good course of action. Especially when, when he's like, it's like actually being told, no, this is a really bad idea. Don't do this. It will end badly. Yeah, the ending was shocking. I think they got the shock value in there. I don't think they necessarily got the whole justification for Luke putting himself in that position. And again, that's quite common in the Arrowverse as well. You have characters that have to behave out of character in order to make something happen. It happens routinely on The Flash, for example. Yes, yes it does. Just to get it as kicking. Well, we haven't been kicking it as often in the podcast recently, so it's good to get that back in there, good to get it back into practice. But that is a common complaint I have with some of these shows is I don't believe that this person would behave like that, but they had to in order to make the plot happen, and that's annoying because it just suggests that I want my ending to be this and I have to get there somehow, so just facilitates this person behaving completely counter to how you would expect them to behave. Because Luke has never been that guy. Luke has never been the guy to, I'm going to step in and deal with that myself physically. The only one was where he was trying to get after his father's murderer. And that's a perfectly reasonable reaction because he has such an intense personal connection to that. And they tried to do that by having it been the same guy they were sharing a cell with earlier. No, not buying it. But the way that continued was really good. 
For one thing, I really like that the other characters understood the universe that they live in. They weren't all, oh my God, Luke's going to die. It was, we have to get the Desert Rose to him immediately. That was the reaction. Yes. <laughs> they didn't act like he was going to die. They acted like, we have the cure. We just have to get it to him. And so at that point, they weren't up, well, they were upset, but they weren't overcome with grief or concern. They were on task, completely on task, because they knew how to solve the problem. And I really appreciated that because it seems like it's one of those things that would be conveniently forgotten every time that they need to conveniently forget it. But the fact is, no, we have this thing and we can fix this was a great reaction. That's some sharp work there. And I also quite liked how they recognised that having the Desert Rose as a fallback to save someone who's mortally wounded is kind of a problem for creating a tension in the future, as if they have a regular supply of this magical plant that can stave off death, and pretty much any kind of peril that characters get into ends up becoming meaningless. So they end up manufacturing a reason for for them to lose it. Unless someone is actually killed in the moment, they shouldn't die. It's a tension breaker, although I don't think the reason that they had for getting rid of it worked all that well. I'm going to give you this plant. To save Alice, because I need Alice at the moment. And then she didn't give them anything useful anyway. Keep a cutting of it, just so you can grow your own again. Yeah. Again, it was just one of those things I just chose to ignore, because if you deconstruct the logic of every decision, then you just kind of get to the point where there's absolutely nothing ultimately makes sense. Yeah, although it was easy enough to deal with it. Just get Kate to take it. Job done. Yeah, sure. That would have worked. It would have made sense. They can't get it back, because Kate's taken it. She gave it to Sophia, who's now left with it or maybe not we don't know where it is basically that's the problem and rather than i'm willing to give up this thing that can literally save our lives every time that we get injured just to get access to alice for five minutes when she won't tell me anything anyway it's a good showing for ryan because she's trying to find a non-violent solution to a problem which makes her really good as a hero but internal logic doesn't quite work in the way that they present it in the same way that luke getting shot makes no sense within the internal logic of whose character is. Which is, again, another thing that happens to make plot happen rather than making sense for characters. But we're going to get that in these shows, aren't we? It's just going to keep happening. Yeah, it's one of the things that we just have to accept that we're going to keep on dealing with because that's just how they sometimes advance things. It's the way it is, yeah. But the following stuff with Luke and his coma and his coma dream, speaking to coma Bruce, manifestation Bruce, whatever. Warren Christie might get to play Bruce Wayne one day. But not today. It was good. I like the idea of the Bruce Wayne manifestation. Say, I'm part of your subconscious. You know I'm part of your subconscious. I know I'm part of your subconscious. So I'm not telling you anything you don't already on some level know. You're a black man. You're always going to be facing this. Wouldn't you just rather die and see your dad? Give up the fight. Just lie down. Calm yourself. Get rid of this burden that's placed on you. Wouldn't that be nice? And the fact that Luke is, yeah, I want to die, actually. I could die. And then he's brought back before that can happen. That was a really interesting and really dark and really morbid plot that I really appreciated because he reluctantly gets brought into the whole, I'm going to have to make the world a better place by using what I have access to rather than the, this is too much work. I could just die right now. That'd be nice. Really interesting. It can't have been an easy decision to write that and make that go in that direction and make it work, but it did. It really worked for me. Because you can understand the impulse of continuing on with life is difficult. Every day you've got to do things. You have to exist. You have to do things that facilitate your existence. You have to play the game a little bit. And it's exhausting, isn't it? Okay. So not wishing to get too personal, but 
The notion of choosing to die is something I have direct personal experience with, and as a result of that, it's something that I take very, very seriously when it's presented in any kind of fiction. And I certainly think that the the way that it was presented, it held up by its own internal logic, with Luke being someone who is heavily driven by his intellect. And when his subconscious presents him with a choice, then it would do so by laying out the facts, rather than trying to manipulate him emotionally. Though I'm not quite convinced that the reasoning was strong enough for him to decide to just give up. Because the whole reason why he's doing what he's doing with Mary and with Ryan is because he wants to improve things. Because he wants to make the world a better place. And presumably specifically for people like him, who will unfairly find themselves the target of abuse and hatred. And so to just suddenly decide to abandon that ideal and be with his dad again, which again is something I get, I just don't think it was quite compelling or strong enough to completely seem like it was something he would actually decide to do. I think a lot of it was down to how knee-jerk the whole thing was, though, because he just experienced a very extreme form of persecution, where he'd been shot in the street by a white man, which, yeah, that's traumatic in its own way. And then the way the Bruce Wayne manifestation brought him round to the idea. I'm not going to say I'm an expert on this thing. I just think that I bought it under those circumstances because the Bruce manifestation is very fixated on the whole, you're not going to do any good here. You're not going to solve anything. It plays into Luke's already well-established insecurities, He already feels like he's nothing compared to his dad in terms of intelligence. He already feels like he's not equipped to support Kate, now Ryan, in the same way that his father would support support Bruce. So it all factors into that. I think it's very easy to get him to spiral into a feeling of, I'm useless. And then that facilitates him, at least in that moment, giving up. But I think the fact that he wasn't immediately suicidal when he was revived tells you that it's not really the way he wanted to progress, because otherwise he'd be just looking for ways to kill himself. That's true, yeah. After that point. And I suppose he kind of was. He went after Tavaroff for revenge, and I suppose he might have hoped that that would have killed him. Picking a fight with this guy would have ended in his death. But again, I don't think that's what he really wanted out of that quest for vengeance either. I think he really just wanted to show Tavaroff that he knows how to play the game as well. And he wants to prove that even though this white guy can cheat, he knows how to cheat too. That was the message of that whole situation. So I think the decision to give up was very much a knee-jerk decision, but at the same time, it wasn't his final decision because otherwise it would have been he wants to kill himself for the rest of the season and it just wasn't that. Yep, that certainly makes sense. And I think with him squaring off against Tavaroff, it was also to establish, possibly to both Tavaroff and himself, that despite Tavaroff completely getting away with basically trying to execute Luke, Luke isn't afraid of him. Yeah, because literally the worst thing Tavaroff could do, he's already tried, and Luke has come back from that. And in not letting the matter rest, then he's shown that he isn't cowed or intimidated by how the situation ultimately played out. And it is that playing the system thing that was great. I thought that was, hey, I can cheat at cards too, but people will be less accepting when I do it. Mm-hmm. And Tavaroff goes to beat the crap out of him in the alleyway because of that, because he lost, because he got beaten at his own game. I like that. I like that touch. It's that here's white male privilege versus, well, not white male privilege. And the fact that Luke is aware of the fact that the odds are stacked against him. And he goes to prove that point in a way. 
And of course, he gets put on the right path by none other than John Diggle, because who oh, yeah. else can do that? And when I heard that Diggle was going to appear in the show, I was like, what was he going to do? Is he going to be in the Batcave showing Team Batwoman mm-hmm. how to do it? But I really liked that he was just in that one bit, and he just happened to be there where Luke was. And then it was the whole, I get it. I lost my dad too. I understand the desire to not continue. I understand how you feel, how hopeless you feel. But... You have to live up to that name. You have to live up to what he stood for. You have to take that forward. And it was that advice. And it's how many times have we heard him give similar sermons to Oliver Queen? Like, no, no, no. We have to keep going because there's no other way for it. And I like the line. It was something like, you'll see him soon enough. And when you see him, give him something to be more proud of. And I really like that. That one piece of advice that was, no, don't worry. Your life is pretty short in total. But once you see your dad again, you can be like, this is what I did. This is how I lived my life. This is how I honoured you. That was classic John Diggle. Yeah, and it was also an interesting context for Diggle to be in. Because even though, obviously, he's a black guy, throughout his characterization throughout the whole run of Arrow, the fact that he is black very rarely played into what happened to him or how he was comporting himself. On, on examples, I remember was quite early on when, when Felicity was concerned about how people might perceive her with her cover essentially possibly being like to be Oliver's side piece. Blonde secretary, yeah. When he states, well, you think that's bad? I mean, my, my cover is Oliver's black driver. <laughs> and there was the other one where it was, well, a man of colour has successfully purchased drugs. Yes! <laughs> that was another one. <laughs> oh, I got forgotten that. <laughs> they would bring it in. It was mostly as a joke, though. Yeah. yeah it was never... As, Diggle experienced any kind of active persecution for being a black man. Exactly, and to bring him in in that context here, it provides a whole new facet to him that they haven't really seen before. And the wisdom with which he was setting Luke straight is indicative of having had similar experiences in in his past that he has overcome and learned how best to, to deal with. And that just makes him even more of an interesting character. Yeah, plus Diggle is massive, so there's also like a fight with him. I mean, they used that in the episode where Luke was getting his ass kicked. And then Diggle just shows up and he just pushes Tavarov yeah. over, essentially. And he's like, you're going to speak to him about showing respect and you're beating him up in an alley? And then Tavarov just slinks off because I'm not fighting this guy. <laughs> and that's fine because Diggle has manoeuvred himself in a position where he is incredibly intimidating. Just by being around him, you'd immediately think, God, this guy's huge. And there's that contrast as well because Luke is very angry. He's very, well, he's very focused, but he's very angry. And his emotions are getting the best of him, where Diggle has learned how to just be calm in almost every situation. How many times in Arrow did you see him lose his temper? Not very often, and it was usually with Oliver. Yeah. He would never really lose his temper with anybody else. So he would never get himself in that situation where he would be misjudged as someone who's irrational and emotional, because the odds are stacked against him as it is in that respect. So he has to approach everything calmly and rationally, and he's learned how to do that. His outward persona is... No, I'm just going to take this and I'm just going to deliver everything that I'm trying to say in this really calm, reassuring voice. And then no one can be uncertain about the fact that I know what I'm talking about. So you get that as well. And even though he doesn't directly tell Luke, calm down, it is implied through the way that he's behaving. It's just, no, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. And I love that he just picks up on the fact that Luke is essentially Batwoman's assistant. When the bat signal goes off, this looks like it's for you. Off you go. I'll be in the cave one day. Don't you worry about it. By the way, I used to know the Green Arrow. He doesn't say that, but yeah. it'd be funny if he did. Uh, yes, I recognise a superhero call to action when I see one. I have some experience in this regard. 
Yeah. It was great seeing him back and in that capacity. And for a relatively short role, because I wasn't sure how they were going to use him. And I don't know how I would have bought into the fact that he comes into the Batcave to help them with a mission. No, he just helps get Luke back on track. Some of my favourite Diggle content is him setting people straight. It's him acting as the advisor. It's him giving people that practical, rational advice. Because yeah, I certainly decided early on in the Arrowverse shows that the dynamic in each of them always requires someone to basically be the team dad. Yeah. <laughs> and it was Diggle who set down that template where you get other characters like Joe in The Flash or Pat in Stargirl, the ones who are there to act as a voice of reason and experience. And I just think that it speaks volumes of the strength of his character, that that kind of dynamic was effectively duplicated from him. Yeah, so I guess Luke is the closest the team has to a dad in this scenario, in a lot of ways. Exactly, and I think Diggle's words to him will likely set him on the path of being more fulfilling in that regard. Yeah, although I'm not sure I'm interested in seeing him become a vigilante in his own right, the whole Batwing thing. I kind of laughed at the suit. It looks a bit ridiculous. They can fix it next season. They can make it look better next season. But it's that whole going from, I want to make a difference in my own way to, I'm going to suit up in this suit that my dad made for me based on drawings that I drew when I was a kid. Hang on. Where did you get here? <laughs> and then he puts the suit on and saves Mary and then that's it. Pretty sure that's not how engineering works either. No. And he gets to defeat Tavaroff, which is satisfying in its own right. But... It's the problem the Arrowverse shows do where they turn everybody into a bloody superhero. You know, Mary will be next. She'll suit up at some point. It's going to happen. So will Sophie. It's going to happen. Yeah, well, I can't remember if I mentioned this in the podcast that we did for the last series. Even though Mary is an original character in the series, she does have some similarities to a comics character called Betty Kane, who was another of Kate's cousins. <laughs> and she became a vigilante called Flamebird, who was... Basically like a female version of Nightwing. For being an orphan, Bruce sure has a lot of family. <laughs> <But> yes. <laughs> I mean, he has his uncle, he has his cousin. There's a like a half-cousin or whatever it would be, I guess. Well, not in this show, but yeah. He's quite an extended family, it would seem. But uh, that might, might possibly be Mary hasn't had any real personal development because they can't think of what to do with her other than to shunt her into form-fitting leather. I kind of hope that doesn't happen. I do like having normal people, quote-unquote. Yeah, because when everyone is a superhero or everyone's a vigilante, then it limits how varied their interactions can be. And it also leads to a possibility of everybody's given solution to a problem to be punch it in the face. Also, something that's not in the show itself, but I really hate how the CW always do this. The promotional photos they released of Luke suiting up as Batwing with the press release saying, this is going to happen this season. I really hate how they keep doing that. And they spoiled the return of Kate as well before it happened. Mm -hmm. I do get why it does it, because you want people to watch the show, especially when the ratings are routinely dwindling for a lot of these shows. You read every week, hardly anybody's watching these things, which begs the question why they're renewing them. What else is there? I do find it a problem when the CW just keep doing that. I remember when they released the Atom suit before... He suited up. They've done it with everything. Every single thing that they've done. Guardian was another one on Supergirl. Mm, yeah. They've released it weeks in advance. So you know it's coming. I mean, you maybe suspect it's coming, but I wouldn't have predicted that Luke would have become a vigilante. Exactly. And, and the thing they sometimes seem, seem to forget as well is that there are a lot of people who watch these shows who aren't familiar with comics at all and are completely unaware that certain characters end up with vigilante alter egos. But there just seems to be this 
overriding presumption that everybody knows these things and are just waiting for them to happen. And so to simply state that they're going to happen doesn't affect anything, which is completely incorrect. Yeah, so I was annoyed at that. I mean, that's not something that the show did, but it's not something I could easily miss either, which is a problem. I just happened upon it because I read these things. The last podcast you were on was a monthly news roundup where we talk about these things. And if it had been recorded at the point where they released that, we would have talked about it. On the previous news roundup, talked about how Bart Allen is turning up in The Flash. But I didn't need to know that. Couldn't it have just happened? Let me see it. Yeah, and the, the problem that I personally have is because a big chunk of most of my days are spent literally writing news stories like that. Literally impossible for me to miss them. And sometimes I just wish that they just kept some things as surprises. Yeah, I like to be surprised. It just so rarely happens. Since we talked about Kate's return being spoiled, let's talk about her now. So Kate Kane comes back with a new face, which is actually a really clever way around the whole casting situation which makes you wonder why they needed to bother with a new character in the first place if they were going to do this but i guess there's always the trepidation around are people going to accept the recast and then she's going to leave anyway so even if they don't then well she might never come back people hate this we won't bring her back i think is what they were trying to say which is fine i think wallace day in the role is great although she only really played her for one or two scenes because the rest of the time she was cersei sionis pretending to be kate or kate brainwashed to be cersei sionis pretending to be kate which is really mind-boggling when you list it like that. And also needlessly complicated in many situations as well. Yeah, crazy. But I liked how they got around it. She has a new face now. She's accepted this new face. She's accepted it pretty quickly. I look like someone else who also exists. It's not that we had to give you a new face because your old one was mangled beyond repair. It was... You look like someone that people know about who has a degree of celebrity because she's a model. She's on magazine covers and so on. They showed you that. So that was a bit weird and it'll be hand-wavy as in they'll just forget that Cersei Sion has ever existed after this point, probably. More likely, yeah. But I thought they handled it well, this whole identity crisis situation, the whole Roman Sionis is willing to accept that Kate Kane is now his daughter because he can't deal with the loss of his daughter. It ties him into the whole loss plot and theme that everyone else is dealing with and gives him his own angle on it he's willing to believe that since this person completely acts like his daughter that she is his daughter as far as he's concerned which yeah i'm okay with that he's nuts anyway which is fine yeah and it speaks to his absolute desperation more than anything else to somehow get his daughter back and because of this ersatz interpretation of her as close as he's ever going to get and then he's, he's willing to just accept it yeah but yeah, I think Wallace Day played that dichotomy very well, that wrestling between the Kate and Cersei's personas. I think that worked really well. She's, I would say, a more capable actor than Ruby Rose is. She has a lot more range. I think Ruby Rose fit the version of Kate Kane that we're writing at the time, but it's clear that they're trying to change her a lot. And I think Wallace Day is more equipped to play that level of nuance. Where I think Ruby Rose always plays these characters that are just incredibly cool and everybody thinks she's cool and she acts really cool. Yeah, and there's absolutely no subtlety to them or her performance as them. Yeah. I wonder how they got rid of all her tattoos without scarring her completely. <laughs> I get it. It's practically magic plastic surgery, isn't it? Yeah, well, I'm just surprised that nobody actually mentioned it. Look where are all my tattoos? I'm going to get these all again. <laughs> Plus, it's good to see Wallace Day back after the cancellation of Krypton. Being robbed. Yeah, to be honest, it's just a good go for a bit of a tangent here, but at the start of Krypton, I found this a really 
boring character, just so rich and aloof and beautiful, nothing really matters to her. But in, in second season, she was like so much more interesting when she was given more to do, and it really showed just what a good actor Wallace Day actually is. I actually liked her in season one. I thought she was an interesting addition in the way that she was sort of rebellious against her station in life because she knew that there was no way it could be taken from her. Until it was, but certainly at that point she believed that, yeah, I'm untouchable, whatever, I'm just going to behave the way I wanted to, and that was fine. But back onto this show, she did really well, and I liked the way that she was manipulating the team, but there was some sincerity to it as well in the way that Luke and Mary reacted to it. And there was that really effective scene where Ryan gets back into the Batcave and she sees on the monitor them just sitting chatting and she's like, I can't wait to get the costume on and be back out there fighting crime or whatever it is she says. And Ryan's there. She's looking at it from afar. She feels like, this isn't me anymore. This isn't my life. This is the true Batwoman coming back and what happens to me. Then she goes back to live in her van. But she's living in her van now with that knowledge of what she could have had and what she enjoyed for a little while. And that was a really tragic assumption that she made. And it was a wrong assumption because all she needed to do was speak to Mary. And Mary would have honestly said to her, we still need to figure all this out. We don't know how it's going to play out after this, but we'll figure it out and we're not going to cast you aside. Yeah, but I think because for so long she felt like that she was just an interim Batwoman and was really just a placeholder for when and how Kate managed to be found or simply resurface. For a long time she accepted that the situation was, was all temporary, but by the time that Kate actually did reappear, she had made the identity of the new Batwoman her own, so wasn't ready to relinquish it. But at the same time she felt that Kate coming back meant that she didn't have a right to it anymore, and so that just left her utterly robbed. Because it's one thing to think about the possibilities of something that you might, they might want or you might like, but you'd never actually have. But it's quite another to experience it firsthand, and then afterwards having to go back to a normal life, knowing what you could have done and what you could have achieved, and just feeling regret about it. Yeah, she got a taste of it and was reluctant to let it go. I thought that scene where she was back in her van, almost like nothing had happened, but she'd gained so much in a way and lost so much because she didn't even have her mother's flower anymore because she gave that up as part of the whole Batwoman thing. So she was back with less than she started with. And as you say, that whole, I've had a taste of that life I could have lived. And there was nobody telling her, right, Kate's back. Off you go. It was something that she concluded herself wrongly. And that's great because sometimes you can read reviews where it's like, well, it doesn't make sense for Ryan to make that decision. It's like, no, it makes perfect sense. You can make an assumption based on things that you believe and those things don't have to be true. But you can still make that assumption. You can still come to that conclusion, even though you have no reason to do so. That's the reason that a lot of people are in therapy. People are telling me these things and I don't believe them. For whatever reason, because I'm so messed up in my own head, I don't believe I have any worth. People are telling me every day that I have worth, but I don't believe it. And that's what Ryan is wrestling with in that moment. Yeah, and I really like that they decided to include something like that. Because it would have been too easy to to have Kate back, but simply have a simple conversation to say, oh, that one is yours now, you carry on doing this. And then that would have been the issue dealt with. But to show Ryan back in her life of directionless misery, then it's so much more tragic. Because it shows that being Batwoman ended up being something that she wanted, not just some kind of means to an end. And just to assume that it was going to be taken away from her. I think that's an extension of how she perceives her own worth as a result of how she's been treated for her entire life because she's 
basically scum, then she isn't allowed to have nice things. She isn't allowed to achieve anything. And because all her life people will have been telling her those kind of things, there'll always be those voices at the back of her mind constantly reminding her of how she has been perceived by other people that constantly erode her sense of self-worth no matter what she actually does manage to achieve. And just all, all that kind of thing is just perfectly encapsulated in this single moment. It's just incredible. And it does cover the whole nobody's telling you that you have to go away thing when she talks to Sophie, where Sophie's like, no, Batwoman is something you've made your own. We're not going to forget that. But she ignores that because all it takes is her hearing the original team Batwoman saying, can't wait to get back to the way things used to be. It's a throwaway comment and it's not really Kate saying it anyway, but it does look to her like, well, okay, I'm surplus to requirements now, so I should just quietly slip away. And it's, as you say, a tragic thing to witness, but it's perfectly understandable how someone would come to that conclusion about themselves because we all wrestle with our own self-worth all the time and it is so easy to have it shattered and I guess for a time it became a very distant problem for her. We don't know if we'll ever get Kate back. In fact, we've got to a point where we accepted that we're not and now it looks like she's coming back. So what happens next and what does that mean for me? And it doesn't mean good things for me, says Ryan. But Kate slash Cersei, I thought it was quite interesting the way they did the whole her betrayal thing. I think she hammed that up brilliantly where she betrayed them, locked them in a cage and so on, stole all the stuff. And I quite like the idea of she had accepted that she's not the original Cersei Sionis, but she is going to appropriate whatever parts of Kate's identity that she felt like. So she took the bat stuff and all the gadgets and corrupted the bat symbol, drew a scar on it or whatever it was just to corrupt it. Didn't really do anything with it weirdly because she was very passive in the final episode at the beginning. She was just kind of wearing that. It wasn't that she was going out ruining Batwoman's reputation. I think it's just because that really wasn't her intention. It was just she was just taking the identity of Batwoman just because she could. There wasn't really anything she planned to actually do with it. To her, it was just a possession that she felt she could steal from someone else because of her overblown sense of entitlement. Yeah, it's just weird how passive she was for much of that final episode. She essentially got beaten up and then they forced her to get in touch with her inner Kate Kane, which I thought was done quite well, the way they mirrored the whole falling off the bridge mm, thing. Yeah. Alice pulling her from the river and the way that Kate couldn't pull her from the river. That was a nice symmetrical point. And the using the, I was going to call it vertigo, wrong show, the snake bite to give the idealised memory of Kate rescuing Beth from the cupboard, the basement cupboard that she was locked in. I liked the way that snake bite could do that. That was a nice touch. And it was certainly interesting to find a positive use for it because up until then it was just this generically addictive narcotic that was being used in various subplots just when they wanted to discuss addiction or the pure illegality of it but actually finding a use for its properties which actually ended up doing some good was i just thought a quite clever resolution yeah and the jacob addiction was okay it gave him something to do him getting the idealized memories of his two daughters being in his life and all that. That was something for him to do. They took him in directions that were a bit weird, as in you had the whole team up with Alice, which amounted to nothing because they didn't really have any compelling conversations about anything. It was just a thing that happened for a little while. And then you had him disbanding the crows after realising how corrupt they are. And you had him doing all sorts of other little things here and there. But it was pretty clear that Jacob Kane's usefulness was coming to an end. Yeah. 
Because they're just, what do you do with this guy now that Kate's not here? Exactly, because the whole purpose of him remaining as part of the story would be him wrestling his desire to uphold peace and uphold the law, which would involve battling vigilantes while also wanting to protect his daughter. And since the narrative was irrevocably excised of that kind of dynamic, then he ended up just becoming another casualty of how everything played out, because... He's just of a very limited purpose now. Yeah, he's one of those spare parts that the show doesn't really need anymore. Yeah, so it seemed like he was he was really just being kept around until they could figure out a decent way of writing him out that wouldn't seem too sudden or random. And then they failed because he was written out in a very sudden and random way. Yeah. Because he gets put in prison, which happened last season. So it just seems to be something that happens to him. <laughs> he's put in prison again. But they took him away from Gotham because he would get shanked and... Blackgate or wherever they would put him, which again is fine. But then he has that one phone call with Mary. That's about it. He doesn't share any scenes with Kate, which is weird. Yeah, it, it just all seems a little bit rushed in the end. Well, Kate, once she's restored. Yeah. But she does say, I'm going to go and visit my dad in prison and then I'm going to see Cara in National City and then I'm going to find Bruce. So those are our three things that she's going to do. And yes, all of which will conveniently take her away from Gotham. And the possibility of her coming back should the writers decide that they need to or want to. But again, if if she just rides off and is never heard from again, it won't adversely affect anything. I guess they were just leaving that open to see how we as viewers reacted to it. If we react favourably, she can come back. If not, well, she won't. Also, it depends on Wallace Day's availability. Also true. Which is always an issue when you're not drawing these things and you're using real people. They have to be available. Yes, yes, you have to consider other people in what you want to do. Yeah, but I did like Kate's exit and the way that she just gave over the Batwoman identity. Makes more sense for you to do it, I'm off. It works because she understands that Ryan has become more of a prolific symbol than she ever did. So it makes more sense for her to continue on. Exactly, and it was really just her realising basically what we were discussing earlier, that Ryan being Batwoman just means more than it ever did for Kate to be Batwoman. Yeah, for sure. But there was a few plots that were clearly supposed to continue on that didn't. That whole, well, I say a few. One main one that they dispatch pretty quickly is the Tommy Elliot pretending to be Bruce Wayne thing. He just becomes a one-episode villain. I wonder how long it would have been. And you can imagine what season two would have been like with a half a season of this guy hanging around behaving suspiciously. As the rest of the team are just like, hi, Bruce, how are you doing? And he's just like, <laughs> he's just fumbling around because he doesn't really know anything. And you get one moment of that. And Luke is a little bit suspicious where it's like, let's go to the Batcave. And he says, look, you're the one that's been managing this this whole time. I'm going to let you get us in because it's up to you now. It's your house. Yes, not because I totally don't know how or anything. Not because I have no idea. But Luke's reaction is just, He's just a bit confused and then do the reveal very quickly. He steals a Batmobile and whatever and shoots Ryan with kryptonite. And that's the end of it, really. That's all it is. Warren Christie's role is summarily reduced. And I imagine that I might consider bringing Hush back at, at some point, just because he has the potential to do more than actually did with him. And since bringing him back into things had so much build-up, then I'd imagine that there were a lot more plans for him in what was originally going to be season two, which all had to be immediately ditched. Yeah, we can't have fake Bruce Wayne hanging around for half a season because it makes no sense for Ryan as a character. Precisely. That was funny, though, because they spent last season being like, no one knows where Bruce Wayne is. He's been gone for five years. He could be dead for all I know. And then he's I came as soon as I heard. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody seemed to just accept that. 
I do hope it comes back at some point because I think it would be quite fun, but I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it depends on Warren Christie's availability or whatever. I think if they do bring Kate back, she'll bring Bruce Wayne in tow. But again, it's availability of these actors. I mean, I don't know what else they're doing. can't imagine Wallace Day's got a lot of work planned. Maybe she does. I'm maybe doing her disservice. But Warren Christie as well, I don't know. Well, he was a lead in a show, wasn't he? Yeah, it was in this series called Alphas, which was actually actually quite good. Basically like a very sort of low-rent X-Men type thing. He was a central character, and in the beginning was the one who was being brought into everything and, and having the whole world and how everything works explained to him. Only lasted for a couple of seasons, basically because it was a point when the Sci-Fi Channel decided to either cancel or bring to an end all of their ongoing shows so they could start a whole bunch of new ones with a clean slate. And unfortunately, the timing of that, the left alpha is just finishing a bit abruptly and also on a massive cliffhanger as well, because that's <laughs> how these things work. Of course, based on how things work in the Arrowverse, it's highly likely that he's going to come back. In the same way with Tyler Hecklin, he'll do a few guest appearances, then they'll commission a Batman show. To be honest, I actually hope we don't, because do we really need another Batman series? No. But they'll have to come up with a different angle, a la Superman and Lois, wouldn't they? So maybe it'd be like Batman and Catwoman, or maybe that's a discussion we shouldn't have. <laughs> based on recent <laughs> things. Let's just not do that. But Not with your wanting to keep all these podcasts clean at any rate. <laughs> yeah, well, let's just not discuss the recent... It's well documented, look it up. If you don't know what we're talking about, it'll be very easy to search for it. Yes. But you know what I mean, if they did a Batman series, they would have to find an angle that hasn't really been explored before. Exactly, yeah. And I'm not sure what that is. What would he be doing? Would he be somewhere else? Would he be doing something else? I don't know. Well, because that was one of the things that I really liked about Batman Beyond, because they actually did do something different with Bruce Wayne, imagining what would be like as an aging man who is far less physically capable than what he used to be. And how would he continue to have relevance and, and carry on his mission? Something like that. It's something that delves into the character, but isn't him stalking the nocturnal city streets and beating the crap out of histrionically dressed mental patients. Yeah. It was also forcing in this whole hush plot, this whole Bruce Tommy Elliot thing, forced in this whole kryptonite thing, which I really hated last season. Turns out Batman slash Batwoman's only weakness is also kryptonite, which really annoyed me. And then it poisoned Ryan for a while, which only really facilitated the whole Desert Rose thing. And it gets Sophia in the plot and it gives Ryan a reason to go after her, I guess. But at the same time, it's just all a bit forced. Also, the kryptonite poisoning went on for a bit long. And the one bit that really stood out to me was when she reconnected with Angelique. And you had that whole scene where, oh, look, Ryan has spent the night with Angelique. At least for the moment, they've made back up. But she didn't notice the kryptonite poisoning because she was surprised by it later in the maybe the same episode or maybe early the following episode. So it's that okay, so what, did Ryan sleep on the couch? Unlikely. Yeah, and if you were having the kind of reconnecting it was implied, you'd think that would be the kind of thing that you would notice, a gigantic glowing green spiderweb across your lover's shoulder. You would imagine so, yeah. It just really stood out to me at that point. I was like, she would have noticed. It was a weird thing, and then you got the Desert Rose Cure, which was there all the time, because they went to Coriana for nothing. I, I actually like that twist, that whole, your mother is looking after you, even now. That's a nice sentiment. Yeah, though it was a little bit frustrating having that the whole Koreana plot, and I was like, okay, so why did we just do all this? Yeah, I liked Sophia though. I thought she was a good villain. Yeah, it was. It was certainly more interesting to have somebody who was more intellectual and manipulating rather than just a simple physical threat. She was very regal, very commanding, very mysterious. 
ticked all those good boxes. Yeah, and I've always found villains more interesting when the focus is on who they are and how they act, rather than just simply what they can do, what kind of abilities they, they happen to have. And Sophia effectively creating her own nation and then installing herself as the monarch over it. I thought that was a really interesting setup to play with, because the rules that everyone was playing by were all hers, and that there really wasn't any set kind of societal norm that could be assumed. It was just all whatever she says goes, and that's it. There's a few weird things, though, because what was her chief henchman or henchwoman's name? Uh, Tatiana or whatever it was. Possibly. Can't remember. Whoever that was, talking about being jealous of Alice because Sophia was in love with her and all that stuff. That didn't really come across as clearly. And then that whole expelling her in Ocean for the reasons of them hooking up on the island when she introduced them and made them work closely together and spar and all the things that in CW shows get people <laughs> even more attracted to one another. So she brought it on herself. Doesn't she know she's in a CW show and that's what happens? Oh, you would think after so much consistency and how certain interpersonal dynamics end up playing out, you would think that people would eventually get wise to it. But apparently not. Yeah, apparently not. So that was a bit weird, and it made her come across as a bit petty in some ways. And I think when she returned at the end of the season, she was supposed to be a peer to Sionis, which she was, but she also seemed a bit, why is she here as well? And she has nowhere else to be, I suppose. Her island's been burned mm-hmm. to the ground, but at the same time, why is she here? Other than because she wants revenge on Alice, I suppose. I think that was it. And just to petulantly exert her power by killing Ocean, who is actually dead this time, because that got really tedious quite quickly. Yeah, because Alice pretended he was dead and then he was dead but had the magic knife stuck in him which means you don't die. It puts you in stasis until the knife's taken out which is what Alice does to Sophia at the end which means that she can come back but in what capacity? Well, it's weird they don't explain what Alice does with her. Does she just leave her on that beach? And it's that whole I've got people following you all the time, apart from on this beach where you're going to stab me. No one's going to step in at this point. Very weird. Maybe it's all bluster and she actually doesn't have the resources she says she does but... At the same time, it's very odd how selective it can be. It's one of those things that any kind of ultimate showdown between two characters can't ever be interrupted by hench people. Just that has to play out with them and only them. Because again, CW show. Yes. Black Mask was our other villain, or Roman Sionis, who was seen in Birds of Prey as well. This is a different version. I prefer this version, actually, but... At the same time, he doesn't really do an awful lot. They set him up as the playing both sides. He's the criminal guy and he's a legitimate businessman. He's those two things. And he uses one role to inform the other and benefit the other. But they didn't do enough with that. And then his speech to the city at the end about rise up and reclaim your power and everybody starts rioting. And then other people don't riot. Which was declared to be the ultimate victory. I ended up having to rewatch that bit to actually figure out what I should have supposed to mean. <laughs> what? Yeah, at what point had you galvanised the city to be rioting, or at least most of them rioting, and then other people not rioting? I felt like the whole thing about Sionis getting half the city to riot seemed like payoff to some build-up that really wasn't portrayed at all. It seemed like it was just a part of the ongoing story that they just forgotten to actually talk about um, when it got to the finale. And if there hadn't been anything like that, then there would have been almost no point having Sionis even there. Yeah, because they were starting the whole, there's inequality in the city and I'm going to fix it. And then they didn't really do anything with it because they flipped over to the whole, I miss my daughter thing. And you had that really good scene actually where he and Ryan discussed loss and how they handle loss and all that. That was actually a really good scene where Sionis was like, nope, I'm just going to ignore what you've just said and go on with my whole crazy plan. But the funniest 
it's maybe not even funny. The thing about that whole resolution is technically the anti-mask crowd one, which is maybe not a message you want to be promoting <laughs> at this moment in time. Because he's saying, put on a mask and riot, and then everyone else is like, actually, just stay at home and don't wear a mask <laughs> and don't riot. I think that was just an unfortunate connotation. I don't think there's any specific point being made either way there. No, I'm reading into it, but <laughs> I just thought I would mention it. <laughs> But in theory, he was a good villain, and I think he was used to enable certain things here and there that worked quite well. And certainly him as a threat for Angelique, certainly him as a threat for Ryan in some ways, and other people kind of worked. But he didn't have the gravitas required performance-wise he did. The show didn't give him the attention he needed to be a season antagonist or a half-season antagonist, which is a problem when he is. Exactly, because if you don't properly establish exactly why someone is such a threat or why they should be so feared or respected, then anything that they do just rings hollow and you run the risk of people asking questions of, well, why are they even here? Which is a problem, especially when they were juggling so many different little villain plots here and there. I actually think some of the more effective villains were the one-shot villains. I forget the name of the, is it the Clue Master? It was. That was my favourite one. There weren't many villains of the week, but that one was really good. I don't even know if it was Cluemaster, but the one that made them participate in a sadistic quiz show. I think it was, yeah. That was really fun. And then you introduced Stephanie Brown. Exactly, yes. Is she the second Batgirl? I think she is. She's one of them anyway. Possibly. I think the second or third. I can't remember. But she is a yes. Batgirl. And I thought she was used really well as an intellectual equal for Luke and how they bounced off each other and the flirtation that existed between them. I think that was good. I hope she comes back because I think she was a really good dose of energy. Yeah, and also just a bit of positivity that the show quite often lacks. Yeah, and I liked how, at least for one episode, they leaned into, no, Batman stuff can be silly. (laughs) Yes! Sadistic quiz show where they have to answer Batman trivia. I thought that was brilliant. Because it takes advantage of the fact that Batman does have a history. There is a history of bat vigilantism that predates the beginning of this show, so there are things that happen that we can talk about. And they're very cagey on the details. We know... What villains have existed. We know that Bane existed. We know that Poison Ivy existed. We know the Joker existed. We know that Batman killed the Joker. But we don't know the ins and outs of these things, really. And I think that's intentional. Because if they ever make any hard and fast declarations of exactly how this history played out, then that's them immediately locked into having that as part of the continuity. And it runs the risk of contradicting some later detail or limiting some story that that they might come up with that they may have otherwise been able to utilise. Unlike in Supergirl, when they were just liberally chucking in stuff that Superman got up to, but also making it clear that there's a lot of stuff that he didn't deal with. Like the creature that makes him conjure up a happy fantasy. I forget the creature's name, but that one, the black, whatever it is, whatever it's called. They mentioned Doomsday and Zod and all these other things that he's apparently dealt with. And then the post-crisis continuity, who the hell knows what Superman has dealt with, which is something that we can speculate about when we talk about Superman as the show. But they've been more cagey with Batman, but it's clear that he's dealt with all the main villains that you would know about. Yeah, which I actually found quite a neat inverse to the TV series Gotham in the all of the main villains were appearing and being dealt with before Batman even was Batman. You mean like in Smallville? See <laughs> uh, you. As we discussed on our news roundup, the fact that you know, Clark gives up being Superman because he's done it all. Doesn't have anything else to do. He's dealt with everything. Did it all before. Doesn't have to be Superman. It's all done. Dark side, done it. Doomsday, done. 
Lex Luthor? Well, we're never getting rid of him, but it's fine. Zod, banished. Yeah, Zod, banished. Gone. It's all good. We're fine. He's in the Phantom Zone. He's not coming back. Unless... Nah, he's just not coming back. Stuff like that. Yeah, so there's Batman. He's killed the Joker. Or has he? Probably not. He probably just thinks he's killed the Joker. Bane, he dealt with. Poison Ivy, he dealt with. The Riddler is mentioned. He dealt with the Riddler. All sorts of other stuff. Don't recall any implication of Harley Quinn. No, she's never been. And Robin's never been mentioned either. Yeah, I don't think any of his sidekick stuff has been mentioned. So there's never been a Batgirl. So I guess Stephanie Brown would be the first Batgirl in this universe. If she became one, which she probably won't. Yeah, so there's a career out there. I like that they were just answering some trivia about it and the fact that Mary and Sophie weren't sure. Yes. Was really good. Yeah. Which one is this? It's that one, it's that one. It was really good. And I like that one shot thing. I can't think of any other villain of the week plot other than the fake Bruce Wayne one. But that was a really good, nice break from everything. Did you deal with that? Yeah, and, and then there was the mind control woman, forgotten her name. Rhyme. Yeah, yeah, sir. Yeah, but she's not really a villain. She was more Alice's antagonist than anything else. Yeah, actually. Yeah, you're right. And then she was just killed off anyway. So it was the end of that. And incidentally to absolutely nothing, but uh, the uh, actress Laura Mennell was also on Alphas. Oh, right, okay. And also actually had kind of mind control powers, now I think about it. Funny how these people end up in the same sort of roles. <laughs> but yeah, so that was really it. I guess as for season three, before we wrap up, we should speculate on season three a bit. I've already speculated that we're going to get a Commissioner Gordon of sorts to Ryan's Batwoman. I think that's what's going to happen. I think the GCPD is going to be beefed up in a big way. Do you think Poison Ivy will be a major villain? Or do you think that it will just be that plant grows and they have to deal with it? They have to find some kind of pesticide to deal with it? I think they're certainly setting up the possibility of her without actually having decided one way or the other if they're actually going to go in that direction. Though I think there's certainly a dynamic that can be played around with with her being a female villain, certainly. And with her powers being focused on controlling men, that still leaves most of the main characters being effectively immune to her capabilities. Or certainly in terms of not being men anyway. But it would also be interesting if Ryan were affected by it on account of being gay. Yeah, it's possible. It would be weird, but it would be possible. And I suppose Poison Ivy, in terms of live action, is one of the relatively untapped Batman villains, Bat-villains... I haven't seen all of Gotham because I gave up because I wasn't enjoying it. So I don't know how well she's used or how poorly she's used in that show. Not very interestingly. Even though I did watch Gotham all the way through, I lost any kind of investment in it way before it ended. And there there were actually, well, not three different Poison Ivies, but three different actresses playing her. Yeah, because she was a child in the first season. I never saw the point where she grew up. She grows up, doesn't she? Yeah, she does because it would be creepy as hell to try to portray a pubescent seductress. Yeah. That's just going to take things to places you really don't want to go. And then after Poison Ivy kind of grew up, not grew up, but was aged up, but was basically still acting like a child. There was a whole thing between her and Selena that never really went anywhere. And then when they changed her again, they got to the point where they were just like, oh, screw it, we're just going to do the comic book villains. <laughs> then she's all, all about being this plant queen and ruling over city botanicals and uh, this cabal of minions and thrall to her, stuff like that. It wasn't really very interesting. I can see them just maybe having the plant be a problem for some reason, but I don't know, maybe they'll bring her in. It may be a good thing. I feel like they should just be establishing their own post-Batman mythology in terms of villains, so they should maybe do more of that. So, I mean, you've done Black Mask, who is a Batman villain, didn't really do an awful lot with him. I suppose he could come back. Alice is who she is, and she's still going to be lingering clearly. Poison Ivy, maybe? I don't know. We'll see. There you've got the whole plot about 
Ryan's birth mother being alive, which doesn't really give you anything. What does that mean? How's that happened? Where's she been all this time? Is she a villain? Again, these are questions that we will answer when we figure out what the answers actually are. Yeah, we'll see. One thing I would like to see in season three is a bit of a crossover. I don't know how possible it'll be at this point, but there was the planned, we'll just cross over Batwoman with Superman and Lois, but they didn't do it for obvious reasons. And they might not be able to do it next season either, which will be a shame. Because I would like to see how Ryan interacts with some people, with different people. Probably not Kara, we won't see that now. But I don't know, someone? Possibly, yeah. Because Ryan is an interesting character, then I would quite like to see how she interacts with some of the other heroes to get her take on what a day in life is, is like for them. Because she has been very isolated, and I think the Arrowverse has become quite isolated in that respect this season in particular, because there has been zero crossover other than John Diggle doing appearances and things. To date, we've only seen him in one thing. This week it'll be two because he's in The Flash this week as of recording. We've seen him in Legends, sort of, but he's been the only connecting piece or will be the only connecting piece so far. I mean, I get why, but I miss the crossovers. I miss them. I always really enjoyed them. And I just always loved how each year they kept on in- increasing in scale. One year I had just basically Barry and Oliver like swapping villains for a week. And then a few years later, I was like, okay, our reality is being invaded by this Nazi dimension. And then after that, is all of reality is being obliterated. You missed the interim setting up the reality being obliterated one. Oh, yes. Which game was quite fun in itself, because that also had some dynamics of how certain characters would interact with other characters but in a different way. Yeah, so we'll see if Ryan gets to cross over with anybody. I would doubt it. I know that they've announced that The Flash next season is going to begin with a crossover of sorts, where I guess they're bringing in characters from shows, probably cancelled shows or probably ended shows, so you might get Dreamer and Jennifer or whatever. Jennifer from Black Lightning. We don't know. So they could do something similar there, maybe convince Melissa Benoist to show up and give her blessing to the new Batwoman. Me and Kate were good friends, and we can be good friends too. But I won't be around very much, because I don't have my own show anymore. Mm-hmm. So, see you later. There's certainly potential there. Just have Diggle turn up all the time. Just every now and again, see how they're doing. I certainly wouldn't mind that. Have Dinah show up and be like, I'll show you how to be a female vigilante. <laughs> I have no idea. But season three, they've certainly reset things in a lot of ways. So you've got it at the point where Batwoman is unequivocally Ryan's now. She has her own dynamics with all of the characters that currently exist in the show. And everything is going to be informing her story from here on out. Because everything else has kind of been resolved. That was attached to Kate. Yeah. Even Alice's inclusion will be more connected to Mary than it will be Kate, I would imagine, from here on out. So it's a reset, in a way. And it's a good reset, I think. I think there's a lot to play with next season. Yeah, I totally agree. Even though pretty much everything that happened in this season was a result of having to deal with the unfortunate circumstances, they certainly got things to a point where everything going forwards can be its own thing. It's no longer a transition. The transition is now done. Exactly. It's not beholden in any way to previous events or the actions of previous characters. And as a result, I think that's going to be a lot more interesting. Yeah, for sure. Because it will be able to keep on looking forwards rather than continually having one eye on the past. Other than all the mentions of Batman's exploits, which they won't be able to get away from. Sadly, no, but I think we can deal with that. We haven't covered this at all. What did you think of the Batmobile? I liked it. I thought it was cool. Like a supercar Batmobile? It was nice. I thought it was great, yes. It was really good fun, and just great to, like, to see it like, being broken out like that and sorry down the street all sleek and shiny. It's funny how it was just hidden behind this wall the whole time <laughs> and they never noticed it. They never knew it was there. Luke didn't know it was there. It was just, oh, look, we'll just plant an explosive here. Tommy Elliott had two goes at it and then he found it. 
Just funny. That's all I really had to say about it. Yeah, I thought it was a cool one. And I haven't really disliked any Batmobile that we've had in live action. The 89 one, however impractical it looks, where you need to use a grappling hook to round corners. Mm-hmm. That's fine. I mean, you get start getting to Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, they just start looking like toys, which they are. I mean, obviously, that's why they make exactly. them. That was the whole point. But there's almost zero merchandising in the Arrowverse, really, other than Funko Pops. And I guess you had some action figures that were for Flash and Arrow, but I can't see them releasing a Batmobile affiliated with a show that you can buy. I still can't buy a freaking Bebo. The one thing that everybody would want. Maybe after Christmas, that'll change. They can merchandise the hell out of him after his Christmas special. Oh, I keep forgetting about that. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. Or really disappointing. It's going to be great. I cannot wait for it. We'll have to do an episode about that. Hell yes. we'll, we'll do a podcast about the Bebo Christmas special. It's going to be amazing. Or terrible. We don't know. Live commentary. Yeah, live commentary. Yeah. So, yeah, Batmobile. Cool. Used pretty well as well. I think they managed to do a reasonable vehicle chase in the final episode with Kate on a bike and Ryan in the car. Also, because the bike is something that has always been Kate, then having Ryan chase her down in the Batmobile, that was effectively claiming something for herself from this identity that she wanted that was kind of stolen from her. Absolutely. Okay, so that's us. We've said it all, maybe. Well, not quite all of it. So just as a quick wrap-up, how did you find Season 2 after our discussion here? I overall quite liked it. It was definitely an improvement on Season 1. It certainly made the best of a bad situation, and now that I've dealt with it all and looking forward to seeing where it goes yeah I'm much the same I just generally echo that I think it was a really good season Ryan was a great addition to the Arrowverse canon I'm sure they'll adapt her in comics in some way shape or form in the near future that usually follows doesn't it more than likely yeah which is fine I won't read them but yeah not because I don't want to it's just because I haven't read comics in a long time but I'm sure it'll happen so yeah season two really good Really good transition. They did such a good job of dealing with unexpected and what could have been crippling setbacks and turned it into something really good. They took all the elements they had and managed to remix them into something really interesting. And I'm really looking forward to season three on that basis now that the show can do a bit of a reset and be a different version of itself now. It can really come into its own as Ryan's mantle at this point. So I'm really keen for it. So yeah, here's to season three. Bring it on. So that's us. That's our discussion of Batwoman Season 2. Andrew, thanks very much for joining for this long discussion, as they always are. First of all, it was a pleasure to be here. Yeah, pleasure having you. And with your different face and whatever, expelling the toxic non-Indigenous personality, as would happen, as does happen. And now, if you'll excuse me, I am going to go stare existentially into a mirror and figure out who I truly am. Good plan. It's always a good plan. Special thanks to Neil Stenson for the supplied music. If you like what you heard here, then don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts, you'll find us. And if you want to continue the conversation about this or anything else, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog or leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. I should mention that Apple Podcast users, if you want to support the show, please leave us a star rating and a comment. We do like five, but if you think there's room to improve, accept less just do it just leave it otherwise we hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod Neil Before Pod